All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in once again here at Lake Point Church. So excited to be celebrating God with you today and getting ready for Easter. Now, when I say the words getting ready for Easter, what are the first things that come to mind? And, and in fact, maybe you want to turn to someone you're on the couch with right now and ask them, like, what, what are the first things that come to mind on getting ready for Easter? Uh, I can just give you a few of them that were long-seated traditions that go way back into my childhood. Things like hot crossed buns. Have you done those before? My mother would go out every Easter morning before we even made it to the church service, before we even did brunch, she'd make sure she got some fresh bakery with these kind of like fruitcake tasting things with frosted crosses on them. That was part of our tradition of getting ready for Easter. Or uh, something we also did was Easter egg fights. Uh, I think it's kind of native to my Polish tradition. I just think that everyone else had done the same thing growing up, but turns out not everyone does it. After boiling the eggs and decorating the eggs, we would all take turns uh, fighting the eggs. Just tip to tip, someone would just kind of do a, a little three-inch lunge at each other, and whichever egg did not break, it kind of went on to the championship rounds from there. And that got us ready for Easter. Uh, I also remember the lamb cake uh, that that my mother, she still makes this thing every single year. It's an upright lamb cake. It's it's frosted. It's got coconut for the fur, jelly beans uh, for the eyes. It's just really a unique kind of thing, especially when you're seeing it being assembled, like baked in two halves and mom sticks it together. It's uh, anyway, these are things that were connected to my tradition of getting ready for Easter. What's yours? Uh, what does your family do? Uh, maybe the good old Easter egg hunt is is the uh, favorite thing that your family does. Maybe Easter brunch is the biggest and best memories that you have growing up. Um, I, you know, I'm sure that this Easter is going to look different for all of us, but but still, we're already thinking uh, about it. And, and all the years with the lilies and the church traditions and, and the fish fries uh, leading up to, to Easter and the Cadbury bunny eggs, which doesn't make sense for a bunny to have an egg, uh, or peeps. I mean, you want to talk about something that doesn't make any sense, it's the, the peeps. But man, we're getting ready. And what I want to talk about today is what Jesus did and what Jesus said one week before Easter uh, to get us all ready. There's a key line that he gives us, and I'm going to share that line with you today. It is not a hallmark caliber line. Uh, When I share this with you, it's not something that you're going to want to put over the mantle, so to speak. It doesn't give you those warm, fuzzy feelings, but it is going to get our attention, and it is going to be captivating, and it is Jesus's way for getting us ready for Easter. So I'm looking forward to unwrapping that with you as we go. Uh, Take a look with me uh, at John's account of Jesus' life. Uh, We're going to be hanging out mostly in John chapter 12 today. John chapter 12 and 11. Uh, It's a section, uh, it's a story that's labeled as the triumphal entry in your Bible. Or as church history has proceeded, we've come back around to label it as Palm Sunday, which today is on the historical calendar. It commemorates the first day of Jesus' final week of life before he was crucified and resurrected. John 12, 12 starts by reading 
The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And now as the people are cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're really cheering, save us, save us. Uh, it's a bit of a celebration, uh, but it's also in the story, it's kind of analogous to a bit of a shipwreck where hundreds of people are gathered as though they're drowning, yelling, save us, save us, Jesus, we're believe, we believe that you're the one who, who actually can. You see, there's hope in the stories that they've heard about Jesus. They've heard stories of his miracles. They've heard stories of his new way of life. And they're already starting to translate into faith what that means. And most of all, they're, they're, they're cheering for Jesus as the Savior from God who was promised centuries before this. You see, God had long promised to send someone directly from God himself who would be the Savior, the one who would reverse everything that was lost to our wrongdoing. And that's what they believe Jesus to be. Now, instead of driving forward in that story today, I'm actually going to take us uh, backwards, just digging a little deeper into why these people felt they needed a Savior, why Jesus agreed that they needed a Savior, and why they agreed so much with Him, why Jesus agreed so much with Him that He was willing to die to be that Savior for them and for us as well. Uh, Luke is, uh, Luke's telling of the same story that we read from John says that as he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Uh, based on God's desires for Jerusalem, this was supposed to be a city that was destined for greatness. And instead, we have Jesus weeping over it. You see, Jerusalem was the capital city of the Jews. And the Jews had a very special favored place in God's history as a, as a change agent for everything that he wanted to do in this world. And this would be the place where he would expect to find the greatest spiritual vitality on planet Earth. Instead, as he approaches it, he finds their climate to be dead. The life and faith would be fitting for God's people just really wasn't there. Now, this is actually the second time that we're gonna that we are seeing Jesus weep in a matter of days. Uh, if you rewind back further, John chapter eleven, just one chapter back from where we started today, we catch a pretty neat story about a guy named Lazarus. Um, the backdrop on Lazarus is that both he and his sisters Mary and Martha were in a very close inner circle with Jesus. Uh, they lived in Bethany, and anytime Jesus was coming through Bethany, he stayed at their home. So th these are like the best friends, the one you know you can crash on their couch or their spare bedroom anytime you're around. That's what these three are to Jesus. But in this particular story, Lazarus is sick. We're not told uh, what kind of sick he is, but we do know it's a serious kind of sick. Maybe it's a high fever kind of sick. Maybe it's I found a lump kind of sick. Maybe it's I'm having a shortness of breath and high fevers and a cough kind of sick or whatever kind of virus was, was alive in their day. Lazarus caught it. And it's the kind of sick where the doctor says to you, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that I can do. 
Now, Mary and Martha are understandably desperate about this. They send word to Jesus. John eleven three. it says, Lord, the one you love is sick. And, and that message was supposed to be enough for Jesus. Hey, um, you, you would expect that Jesus would drop uh, what, what they would do. Uh, but Jesus does a strange thing. In uh, chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that's, that's an established part of the story. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Uh, generally, when someone calls you and says, I'm sick, come as soon as you can, you, you drop what you're doing and, and you go there and be there for that person. Or if they, they tell you, hey, I made the big mistake. I'm one of the people that stocked up on piles and piles of to- toilet paper instead of Tylenol. Can you come help me? You would, you'd still find a way to come help, wouldn't you? Especially if it's someone who you start with the preface of, this is someone who I love. But Jesus doesn't. And Mary and Martha can't figure out why. He says to his disciples, uh, finally in verse 7, let's go back to Judea, which is the region where Bethany is, where Lazarus is. But by the time they get there, Lazarus is not sick any longer. Uh, Lazarus is dead. He's actually four days dead. Martha comes out to Jesus before Jesus even makes it to the home. She's like, I'm going to go meet out, go out there and meet this guy. And he says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't think she's going out to just explain some facts of life to Jesus. I think she's going out because she's angry. She's mad at him. Like, where, where were you when we needed you? You're, you're helping everyone else. You care about everyone else. You heal everybody else. What, what about me? What about my brother? Jesus, why don't you care? So then they get into this exchange. Uh, Verse 23 of John 11. Your brother will rise to life, Jesus tells her. I know, she replied, that he will rise to life on the last day. It's like, hey, everyone gets to meet in heaven. Fantastic. A lot of good that does for me right now, Jesus. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live, even though they die. And those who live and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Uh, Mary and Martha and everybody uh, were weeping over the death of Lazarus. That's what we're told in this story. And weeping in those days does not mean the polite type of sniffling we try to limit our grief to when we attend someone's funeral. Uh, In most contexts here, weeping actually means wailing. We're talking about an outright, uncontrolled blubbering as they try to come to the grips with a loss of a loved one. As Jesus approaches, he sees the weeping, he experiences the wailing, he sees the tomb, and, and then he just loses it. John eleven thirty five says Jesus wept. He joins in on the let loose grief of just weeping and wailing over someone that he loves. He does gain some composure, and Jesus has them roll away the stone of Lazarus's tomb. This is not something you normally do with dead people. And so there's a little drama going on in this moment. And I imagine that everyone quiets down from the weeping and wailing. And we got a little bit of a silence going on. And then Jesus uh, prays, John eleven forty one, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Heard. Past tense. Not, not a future tense, not current tense. Heard. 
So if you remember those two days where it looks like Jesus is hanging around doing absolutely nothing for the people he loves, what Jesus is actually doing is praying. Uh, he's probably praying something to the effect of, God, I, I pray for Lazarus. I pray for your power over his death. But God, I also got a prayer that's bigger than that. Easter's just around the corner. And I pray for a prequel to what Easter is all about. Give people a picture of salvation. Give people a picture of what you do that's bigger than death that's around us. And you're about to do something for all people on Easter morning. Give them a foretaste of that through my buddy Lazarus. And so in the big moment, Jesus, in a loud voice, says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. The dead man actually gets up and walks out of his own tomb. That's not something you see every day. At least I sure hope it's not something you're seeing every day. And it creates so many questions. What just happened here? What does this mean? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean for everyone else around me? What if, what if death is no longer the end? What if that's not where all of us end? What if there's something in this guy, Jesus, that brings all dead things back to life? Now, let's, let's try to connect all the stories here, okay? Um, Jesus wept over the deadness of Jerusalem. Okay, we read that. Jesus also wept over the deadness of Lazarus. I don't think it's too much of a reach to say that Jesus still weeps over the deadness today. The deadness of our lives and our world right now. I mean, did you know that we weren't actually meant to die? There wasn't anyone who was supposed to get COVID-19 or any other virus that has ever gone through the world. There's never supposed to have been a virus. That God did not create things that way. Death is the product and the presence of sin. Death entered the human race when the first man and the first woman wrongly rebelled against God. And, and the point of the story of those first people in Genesis is not just to tell us that that's what happened. It's to explain to us that is what is still happening. I mean, everybody in human history has repeated the same pattern of Adam and Eve and one way or another has said to him, I am going to go about my life, my way. Thank you very much, God. And there lies the reason there's the connection between death and doing wrong. Our lives are from God. Our lives very much depend on God. And so when we do wrong, it's a declaration of, I just want to live my life on my own without you. The problem with that is when we tell the founder and the sustainer of our life, we don't want to live with him, then we no longer live. That's called death. That's the connection between our death and our wrongs. When we go against God, it's not just wrong. It's not just this technicality of something called sin in religious terms. It's doing wrong brings deadness because it was a walk away from the God we're so dependent on. I mean, if you just want to skip the ethics of all this for a moment, like put it in your terms and just pragmatically consider what does sin do to people and life around you? Make your own connections, okay? Lies are not just lies, are they? They bring about a deadness to trust and therefore a deadness to the relationships around us. Sexual sins, they're not just harmless, you know, if we kind of keep them to ourselves. They, they bring deadness to the union with the one that we're meant to be with. 
casual joking and gossiping. It, it doesn't just lighten the mood. It brings deadness to the value of another person. Rage and temper, they're not just scary. They bring deadness to the safety that someone else is supposed to have. Greed and selfishness, it brings deadness in that other people have to suffer without any sort of end in sight. Deadness can take the form of hunger. Deadness can take the form of poverty, abusing a substance. It's not just unsafe and unhealthy for you. It brings deadness in the form of an addiction. Pride isn't just an inflated self-esteem. It brings deadness to what a maturing adult is meant to be. Worry isn't just a dismal outlook. It's the deadness of paralysis. I'm just not going to get up and keep going. Sin isn't just wrong. Sin brings deadness. And we've all done it. We've all sinned. And when we did, we brought deadness into our lives. And Jesus mourns that fact. Jesus weeps for you. He weeps for all of us. You know, most of us got this picture of God where, where God is either like spitting angry about the sins in our life or he's just like gently soft and dismissive about sin, right? I mean, which, which one of those camps do you fall in? Are you the kind of person that feel, figures like, hey, God's out there. God's going to smite me for my wrongs. Like, like the thunderbolt, the lightning's going to hit. Everything that's wrong in my life right now is connected to I did something wrong against God and now he's getting me back for it. This is what I deserve. Some of you think that way. And others probably fit in more into the camp of, hey, uh, maybe this guy just kind of like winks and smiles about our sin. You know, boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. He knows that like this is just how humanity is and we're all not, not that much worse than the next person anyway, right? But have you considered that maybe the most accurate, accurate picture of God's dealing with our sin is that he's weeping? He's weeping right now, just outright sobbing, broken, that you were made for life. And then at least in some area of your life right now, instead, you're dead. The people said, as Jesus wept for Lazarus, John eleven thirty six. see how he loved him? You know, the leading edge of God's response to your wrongs is not rage and anger, over how wrong you've been. And it's not a gentle dismissal, like your sins didn't matter. The, the most abundant response to God's, God, your sin is God's love. Just poured out abundantly for you to the point of bringing him to tears. And I know that's hard for a lot of us to believe in. The idea that God doesn't hate you, that he actually loves you. But you are loved. It, it just... I don't know what your picture is in the crisis right now, that God's turning a blind eye to everything, but I don't think he does. For every person that gets hospitalized, for everyone who's experiencing this global anxiety right now, for anyone who has to go so much as one night with a fever, we, we got a God who comes alongside of the things that are dead. And like, like a parent sitting next to their, their, their son's hospital bed, he weeps for us. It's a picture of his love for you. But even if you are able to grasp his love, I think a lot of us struggle to grasp the picture of us being the ones who are dead right now. Uh, the idea that you're the one who's sick. 
Uh, you're the one who's dying. Um, that left to your own strength with your own wrongs. That, you know, like in this world, it's like the most rampant virus that the world has actually ever known is actually this thing called sin. And, and you caught it. And it's killing you. In and of yourself, there's nothing that you or anyone else can do about it. Um, that's hard to take in, isn't it? Um, here, here's what I kind of related to. I remember um, back in my teenage years when I had a job as a lifeguard in Milwaukee County. Uh, specifically, uh, I was uh, stationed at Cool Waters Park in, in Greenfield. It's, it's still over there. It's still a fun place. I thought it'd be a really fun summer job. You know, be with a bunch of friends your age, you're out in the sun all the time, you get to wear a uniform, you're swimming like, lifeguarding was going to be like really, really cool, is what I thought, but then when I got there, I found it's mostly sitting in the same chair every day, bored to tears, and occasionally yelling at kids to stop running and stop having fun, right? But uh, lifeguarding was actually really interesting in terms of the training that they gave us. Um, did, did you know that before they even taught us in lifeguarding how to save people, they first taught us how to drown people? I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, the way they explained it to me uh, is that a drowning person is often in such a state of panic that they don't know which way is up, much less how to be saved. So as you swim over to them into, into deep water, they are liable to just like grab around you with like both arms and both legs and just hold on to you for dear life like you're some kind of floating buoy. The problem is you're not a buoy and you don't float for, for, for that long at, at least, right? So in that moment, if a drowning victim does that to you, you have one or two choices. Uh, you can either play along uh, with this program on their terms, which means staying afloat as long as you possibly can, but eventually you're going to sink and they're going to sink with you and both of you are going to drown. Or... You can force them to do it your way. So what they would teach us to do was to swim underwater with a drowning victim until they would let go. Now, if all goes well, you meet back at the surface um, and then proceed with your way. But if they still insist on doing it their way, then the second time you take them back underwater and you leave them there long enough to render them unconscious. Sure, you're hoping for cooperation from the get-go, but if worse comes to worse, they would tell us to go ahead and drown the drowning victim just so that they would let us save them the only way that we could. I mean, we knew how to resuscitate someone who would stop breathing. What we did not know how to do was save someone who wouldn't let us save them. I told you there's going to be a one-liner from Jesus. We're going to get to it now. It's in Luke chapter 13, 34. He's talking to Jerusalem and he says, How many times I wanted to put you in my arms, put, put my arms all around you, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. You would not let me. And, and that's the one line that I want you to take today and use that to get ready for Easter. Would you let them? After all the longing, after all the love, after all the weeping, how often are we the drowning victims 
that just won't let God save us. Uh, I mean, maybe you're a super responsible person or you got enough shame or guilt built up that you told her, if you're going to get yourself out of this drowning situation, you better be the one to fix it on your own. You better figure out how to, how, how to swim for shore and, and make it work like, it, like it's all on you. Or, or maybe you're the person who's trying to tell yourself, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not really drowning anyway. This isn't that bad. Every, every, everyone's out here in the same place. Or maybe they're trying to, you're the person who says, yeah, I may, I may be drowning, but I don't think God's coming for me anyway. You're just not sure he loves you. What I want to encourage all of us to do right now is just picture that last line we read. A God who says, man, I'm just longing to gather all of you in my arms. Just, just, just like a mama hen with a little bunch of chicks tucked underneath there. That, that's the picture of what God in his love wants to do for you. Uh, but you got to let him. I mean, go, go ahead, get, get everything else ready for Easter. Get, get those Easter baskets out of the attic, uh, dust off those plastic eggs for last year. But we all need to ask the question, am I letting him save me right now? Uh, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm also going to invite you to respond to Jesus' salvation. God, we believe that you're, you're a God who still weeps for us today. That much in those ways that you approached Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, the week before the first Easter, you approach our lives too with some tears. Because things that, some things are dead. It shouldn't be. And maybe the hardest part is to realize that, yes, there's a Savior. And yes, we're all cheering for him. We get right down to it, God. Sometimes we just don't let you. And so if you want to make a prayer, maybe it's something like this. God, I want to let you save me. I want to admit that I don't have it all together on my own. I want to admit that guilt and shame and regret would be my story if I just read it the way that I've, I've wrote it for myself up until this point. But I believe that you can save me. And I believe that what you did on the cross counts for me, that guilt is gone, that forgiveness has, a, has had its price paid for. And I just believe you want to hand that to me because that's what the story says. If you want that salvation from Jesus, that's all he's asking for. Sin, I believe that what Jesus did counts for me. And can you just keep that prayer going? List out anything else you got going on in life, anything that's broken, anything that's hurting, whatever the most current regret is, wherever anxiety and worry is highest for you right now, and say, Jesus, I believe you saved me there too. There's other dead spots in my life that I'm sorting out one by one. And it doesn't feel like I can't do that I can do it on my own because I can't. Can you make the prayer right now of saying, Jesus, I'm going to let you save that too. This is where the glory of God shows up in our life. And we thank you, Father, for making it all possible by sending your Son. In Jesus' name we pray.